Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Richard Cowardine about his study of the role of humor in the life of America's 16th president in titles Lincoln's Sense of Humor. Richard, welcome to the show. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Mark. I'm uh, very grateful for the invitation. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, I'm now a uh, retired uh, historian from Oxford University. I uh, was uh, the Rhodes Professor of American History for... Uh, seven years. Um, I then uh, retired from that to become president of uh, one of the uh, 38 uh, self-governing colleges that make up Oxford University, Corpus Christi College. Um, I saw the college into its 500th anniversary year, 2017, um, and I'm now happily uh, semi-retired and returning to the life of the writing scholar. So um, so that, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, what was it that uh, led you to write this book? Uh, as with so many explanations for why one does things, it's partly uh, to do with other people's initiatives. Um, I gave a lecture on Lincoln's humor uh, many years ago at a conference in the Huntington, the Huntington Library in California, 2009. Gary Gallagher, Joan Waugh invited me to um, to speak at one of their Civil War conferences. And I thought, well, I'll, um, I'd like to do a talk on uh, Lincoln and the... The Copperheads and his uh, view of the Copperheads and his, in particular, um, the way in which he'd warmed to a satire at the expense of Copperheads written by David Ross Locke. Um, and the subject of the, the, the protagonist in this satire is the, the figure of Petroleum V. Naseby, and we may have occasion to talk about him later on. But uh, um, that led me into uh, really e- examining a satirical work that Lincoln found extremely attractive, extremely uh, funny, um, and uh, w- wonderfully uh, edgy in the way in which it exposed the, uh, the, the, the ethical flaws, as he would see them, of, um, of copperheadism. Uh, it was a single lecture. Um, I gave the lecture in the Huntington Library, and um, uh, the, the following year, I was invited to, to Gettysburg to give the lecture again. Uh, and the editor of the Concise Lincoln Library, uh, Sylvia Rodrigue, was present. And following that, uh, a couple of years later, in fact, some not immediately, but eventually, she uh, she got in touch and said she thought that Lincoln's sense of humor would make a or Lincoln's humor would make a very good subject for the Concise Lincoln Library series. Would I be interested in? in writing for it. And um, at the time I was president of Corpus Christi College, I didn't have a lot of time for um, a a major scholarship, but I thought I could probably, um, in the corners of time, little pockets of time that you get as a president of an institution, um, work on the the subject. And she was very, she, Sylvia, was uh, my editor, was uh, uh, generous in giving me latitude of time to complete it. And eventually in 2016, I submitted my manuscript and the book uh, came out just a couple of months ago. So that's really the the story. It was uh, an initiative taken by an editor 
in response to uh, a lecture that I'd enjoyed researching and which took me into an aspect of Lincoln that I'd, uh, I'd long thought worthy of exploration but had never previously found the time to do. One of the aspects of the topic that I found so interesting is how it really runs counter to so many the image of Lincoln that so many people have in their mind, sort of the image of, of Lincoln at the memorial of the uh, stern, kind, yet very serious statesman. And as you explain, that that is, in some respects, a misnomer, and that humor uh, played a very large role in both Lincoln's life and his career. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I think that it's very easy to take Lincoln's reputation as a storyteller, uh, 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 to, to take that w without the full seriousness uh, that it deserves. I, I do think that uh, you get a, a, a better way of understanding someone from what makes them laugh as from what makes them serious. Um, I think it's a, a way of getting a purchase on, um, on, on Lincoln that um, uh, there's been uh, certainly revelatory to me. Uh, I think it takes us, his, his humor takes us to the heart of the man. As I say, I think uh, uh, we learn as much, if not more, about people when they're being funny as when they're being serious. Uh, his humor was really a, a sort of reflex, a, a habit of mind, as one of his colleagues put it. Uh, it was rich, uh, many-sided. Uh, he had a Catholic taste in in humor, and the tall tales, Western tall tales, political satire, as I've mentioned, sharp wit, um, absurdity, uh, morality tales, uh, particularly bawdy jokes. Um, he, he read widely uh, in, uh, in terms of humorous literature. Uh, he was also a very fine mimic. He could reduce an audience to tears of laughter. Uh, uh, he appreciated the absurd, uh, I think his appreciation of absurdity gave him a sense of, of proportion, a sense of the follies of humankind. I would even go so far as to say that a sense of humor is possibly an essential element in uh, in statesmanship, in the highest form of statesmanship, because I think it provides a sense of, of proportion, of uh, human folly, human frailty. Um, so yes, it is. It, it It is very much a feature of Lincoln. I think it's it's to be seen in conjunction with something that we've known about Lincoln, what is more commonly understood about Lincoln, which is that he was a man who suffered very considerably from melancholy and from 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 sadness and times indeed acute depression. Uh, those bouts of deep depression are very well documented. Um, Billy Herndon, his law partner, said, you know, Lincoln was a, a sad looking man. He said he said melancholy dripped from him. Uh, as 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 he moved, um, and I have I think we have to see his laughter, his humour as the other side of that coin. And uh, another colleague, David Davis, Judge David Davis, said that uh, Lincoln's jokes were were done to whistle off sadness, to whistle off sadness. And I I, I think there was a an element of deliberation in Lincoln's turning to humour as a means of contending with those periods of depression. 
um, there's a similarity here, I think, with uh, with uh, our great British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who who also suffered from these these visits of what he called the black black dog. And uh, when when Lincoln was um, uh, uh, entertaining uh, Francis Carpenter, the portrait painter in the White House, for about six months, uh, he he opened the doors of the White House for Carpenter to work on his great portrait of the. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, the, the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and, and Carpenter quotes Lincoln uh, uh, saying, and it sounds to me entirely authentic, he said that you know, if it weren't for the, the, the jokes and the jests, the, the stories that uh, uh, he told, uh, Lincoln said he 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 then he, um, he he would he would not have a means of dealing with his moods and his gloom he said that the, these jokes were the vents of my moods and and gloom so yeah i think humor is absolutely at the core of um of, of lincoln's being it's not the only element at the core of his being but without it he said uh, we if we don't understand that we don't understand uh, what it was that made him made him tick uh, i don't mean by saying any by saying this by the way that lincoln didn't, as it were, cultivate his his humorous craft. I mean, it was it was natural to him. It was uh, it was instinctive. But he was also actually extremely enterprising uh, in the way in which he was as, almost as enterprising in his use of humor as he was in in politics. And he he used that humor in a variety of different ways. It wasn't just as therapy, but it was also to outwit his political opponents. It was uh, to outwit his legal adversaries. Uh, it was also a means, uh, he, he told his tales very often as a means of illustrating uh, a political or a legal point. So there was a kind of utilitarian dimension to it in that way. He would use a story as a way of making a point forcefully or making a point clearly to, to a jury or to an ordinary, to an audience of, of ordinary folk. Um, and he, he also used it deliberately, I think, as a means of self-deprecation um it was a way of uh, emphasizing his common roots the fact that he was an ordinary person with no airs and graces um and i i i, I think probably you need to be someone who is extraordinarily um and grounded and strong have a and, and someone who has a very strong sense of self-worth to be able to use humor in that self-deprecatory way but you know, Lincoln was was often telling stories about um, against himself, particularly in respect of his uh, uh, physiology and you know, his his very unusual uh, physical proportions. You know, he was, he was not just a very tall man, but he had these unusually long limbs. And uh, of course, the, his critics called him the the gorilla, the original gorilla. Um, he, he he was considered by many to be an ugly man. Um, and so he took that on board and used it as a means of humor to uh, deflect it. Uh, he, uh, he, there were many stories. One that's like perhaps the most familiar one is when he encountered a, a stranger in a railroad car who said to, 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 to him, excuse me, sir, but I have an article in, in my possession which belongs to you. And um, the, the, the man, the guy took a, a jackknife from his pocket and said, this... Um, and this was placed in my hand some years ago with the injunction that I was to keep it until I found a man uglier than myself. Uh, allow me uh, to say that I think you are fairly entitled to the property. Um, and there's another occasion when Lincoln um, was, uh, was, uh, met on, he was frequent 
frequently photographed during the uh, during the Civil War, as we know, and many, probably 60 or 70 or 80 different occasions where he sat. Um, and on one of these occasions, the photographer said, look, it just, just looked natural, uh, to which Lincoln replied, oh, that's what I'm trying to avoid. Um, so... <laughs> So, uh, so a long answer to your question, but yeah, um, absolutely central to humour, absolutely central to our uh, full understanding of Lincoln, uh, something that he considered to be um, central. He himself, when if, he, if when we're able to interview him now, he would agree that uh, his humour was absolutely at the core of what he of what he was, um, and something that he deployed um, to great effect, um, uh, both. Uh, in private and in public, um, in the political and legal settings. One of the things I enjoyed about reading your book was how you use that to get into a bit into a, into an examination of political culture during the time Lincoln on the stuff, and it was very fascinating. But one of the things that uh, I thought was especially interesting was your description of how his use of humor on the stump evolved. And you describe uh, a couple of instances where he realized that as as effective and as as valuable as humor could be, that he that he needed to exercise restraint in using it because it could have an effect beyond. What- uh, yeah, indeed. Um, I, I think uh, he uh, he got into trouble. Um, uh, as a younger man and his use of, of humor. And I came to learn, I think, that restraint in the use of humor in public was something that would be uh, to his to his advantage and his benefit. Uh, let me give you, um, there is sort of two, 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 not episodes, but perhaps two, two periods uh, where he, he, he thinks about the, the place, the proper place of humor in, in public life. Um, the first is uh, when he's now established in the late 30s and the early 1840s as uh, one of the, the leading um, politicos in political figures in Illinois. Um, uh, he has a reputation by then for uh, the use of wit and, and storytelling, of uh, use of anecdotes. Uh, he's an attractive, uh, engaging public speaker. Uh, he's also um, knows that uh, when he's in any kind of in, informal gathering of number, uh, but a number of people in an informal setting, uh, his uh, storytelling and his mimicry uh, makes him a very popular figure. So, I mean, one one of the reasons he was elected to the captaincy of the military company of the Black Hawk War, the, the company of New Salemites in the Black Hawk War, was because he was uh, he was a popular figure who had won that popularity through his being a very, very engaging company. So he, he knows the, the value of um, that particular tray in his, um, in his armory, that particular instrument in his armory. Um, but in the campaign for the legislature in 1840, he, he responded to um, a particularly stinging speech of uh, Judge Thomas, Jesse Thomas, um, and for the first time ever in public, uh, as Billy Herndon tells us, uh, Lincoln resorted to mimicry for, for effect. Um, and he uh, imitated the peculiarities of uh, Judge Thomas's gesture, his particular voice and his particular walk, which was, I believe, as I understand it, very, very imitable. 
And um, Thomas uh, broke down and began to blubber like a baby, as, the, as, as it was described. Um, the, the skinning of Thomas was uh, how the event came to be known. And um, Lincoln recognized that he'd gone too far. In fact, he went and sought out Judge Thomas to make an apology. Uh, Lincoln knew that yeah, he'd, he'd won the debate, but he'd done so at a cost. And that lesson was driven home even more powerfully a couple of years. So there was a sort of parallel lesson a couple of years later, um, a very painful episode in 1842 when uh, he used satire uh, in the pages of the Sangamon Journal to attack the, the Democratic state auditor, uh, James Shield. Shield was a, was a vain man. He was an easy target. But this particular attack uh, was, amongst other things, sexually demeaning. And uh, Shields, who had a very short fuse, challenged Lincoln to a duel, uh, a duel which Lincoln didn't want to accept, didn't really believe in the, uh, the ethics of dueling, but he felt he had no option but to accept. Um, I, having accepted the duel, he he was as the person who had been challenged, the person who made the selection of weapons, and he chose um, cavalry broadswords of the largest size. I think there was some uh, some dark humour in the selection of of weapons there. Um, but uh, and at the last moment, fortunately, the, the seconds managed to to avert the duel. But um, Lincoln f was forever ashamed of that particular affair. It dogged him politically. Um, it may well have denied him the nomination for the the Whig um, the Whig congressional seat or the congressional seat as a Whig uh, when he was hoping to run for Congress in 1842, 1844. Um, uh, it certainly um, dogged him into the 1850s, and it was a subject that he always really wanted to to deflect. Uh, so he, he, he'd learned through the skinning of Thomas and through the, the Shields affair that taken to uh, extreme ridicule and humor could be damaging as well as, as helpful. Uh, and uh, so when in the mid-1850s, um, following the passage of the Kansas nebraska bill, the Nebraska Act, which of course uh, uh, repealed the Missouri Compromise, uh, opened up the uh, the Western territories to the prospect of slavery, um, uh, and which re-energized Lincoln politically and led him to return to um, to, to national to, to state politics and with an eye on national politics. Um, uh, he, from that point onwards, in 1854 onwards, um, beginning with the pure the great Springfield and then Peoria speech of of that uh, of that fall. Um, what you see in Lincoln is much more earnestness in his uh, mode of speak, public speaking. Um, it, 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 it leads his friends to say, particularly during the debates with Douglas in 1858, you know, why, why aren't you using your usual store of anecdotes and stories and mimicry, uh, this, this proven and potent weapon from, um, from, from earlier times, why he wasn't using uh, this against Douglas? And, and Lincoln replied, well, you know, this is, this, the occasion is too grave and, and too serious. Um, we're now uh, having to discuss w w matters of great moment, and um, if we bring the uh, bring, bring humor into play, if we bring anecdotes into play, then that is a detraction from the, the seriousness of the of the issue. So 
Uh, yes, Mark, you're 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 right that um, there is a there is a shift, a discernible shift in the way in which Lincoln uh, de- deploys uh, or thinks about humour uh, in the 1850s, the, from the way in which he deployed it at, a, at an earlier stage, and this becomes, I mean, that that way of thinking about the place of humour in public life is reinforced by uh, the onset of war. Um, because although Lincoln, <laughs> on the one hand, he's the first president um, consistently to make storytelling and laughter tools of the office in private, uh, in the cabinet, in the company of friends, colleagues, visitors to the White House, um, his, uh, that, that's true. But, but his public pronouncements and his speeches were almost invariably serious. Um, uh, what he does as president is to use his humor as a means of making military and political points with, uh, with great economy. And I can, I can give you a few examples of those if, um, if, if you like. Um, okay. Um, well, just, just, just a, a few, um, which there are many more in the, in the book, but, uh, uh, when uh, so one example, um, Lincoln uh, gets a, a telegraph from uh, a telegram from uh, uh, General Pope John Pope, Major General John Pope, um, that he'd he'd captured five thousand of uh, uh, Beauregard's men uh, and was now marching on the Confederates and would soon uh, have the uh, Confederates in his power. And the, the cabinet, um, knowing of this telegraph, asked the president for his opinion. Uh, and Lincoln replied, uh, as he so often did, by saying, that reminds me of the story. And that reminds me of the story is the kind of litany of the incantation that is uh, uh, repeated over and over, um, uh, not, not just by Lincoln, but by, uh, by those uh, who just love in the press to say another story from the president. The president tells the story that reminds him of. Uh, on this occasion, the story was of an old woman in Sangamon County um, who was ill, and the uh, the doctor was called. Um, he uh, prescribed some medicine for her, which he for her condition, which he diagnosed as constipation. And uh, when he came back. Uh, uh, the following morning, he found her uh, fresh and 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 getting breakfast. She seemed to be well recovered. Asking her then uh, if the medicine had worked, uh, she said yes, it has. And to which he said, um, "Well, uh, how many how many bowel movements? Um, well, um, uh, 142." Uh, <laughs> uh, which the physician said, "Madam, I, I'm serious. You know, you have to be joking. How many? I need, I, I must know. 142. No, he said, you couldn't have had 142. It's unnecessary that I have the exact number of movements. I tell you, 142. 140 of them, wind. Um, well, Lincoln closed the, uh, the discussion by adding, uh, telling the, the cabinet, I'm afraid uh, Pope's captures are 140 of them, wind. Uh, and uh, the, 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 there's, there's another example. I'll just give you one more example. Um, this is the, the, the Trent affair. Uh, uh, during the discussions in December of 1861, uh, you recall Britain had threatened war uh, over uh, the Union Navy's seizure of Confederate envoys from a, a British ship. Um, in December of 1861, the cabinet is discussing this, and 
um, he finds that he Lincoln finds he's got the support of only one cabinet member, and uh, uh, he recalled. Uh, the drunk who had strayed into an Illinois church um, and uh, fallen asleep in the front pew, um, the, the drunk um, um, slumbered on um, as the, the revivalist asked um, who who were on the Lord's side, um, and uh, the congregation responded by rising as one en masse. And then when the preacher inquired on who were on the side of the devil, uh, the, uh, the sleeper stirred, but not entirely grasping the inquiry and seeing the minister on his feet, he, he stood up and said, I don't, un- I don't exactly understand the question, but uh, I'll stand by you, parson, to the last. But it seems to me, but it seems to me that we're in a hopeless minority. Uh, uh, and again, you know, Lincoln didn't, Lincoln didn't need to say any more than that. He just made his point very powerfully. I mean, he, um, um, he, 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 uh, but as well as this um, use of um, stories, uh, uh, sort of parables, uh, sort of anecdotes uh, to, to illustrate a point more powerfully, he also, I think, had a, uh, a, a wonderful um, swiftness of wit, uh, sometimes to deflect uh, political requests. Um, there's a famous tale told, one of my favorite tales told, um, which appears in, in Ward Lamon's recollections of... Um, uh, of, of, of Lincoln and the White House, um, and it has to do with the the delegation who came to urge the appointment of a friend of theirs as commissioner to the Sandwich Islands, the, the uh, that's in Hawaii, of course. Um, and they emphasised not only the man's fitness for the post, but his poor health, uh, which uh, they said would benefit from the balmy climate of the Sandwich Islands. Uh, well, the president closed the interview with uh, affected regret by saying, gentlemen, I'm sorry to say that there are eight other applicants for that place, and they're all sicker than your man. Um, and again, you know, it's, 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 he thinks fast on his feet, but he does it with, with, with grace and with, and with humor. Um, in, in a slightly more embarrassing setting, um, although Lincoln was no... Uh, uh, no drawing room wit. He did have. Uh, he could be clever in the swiftness of his rejoinders. Um, uh, as I say, particularly when uh, the situation might be socially awkward. And uh, the episode uh, that I have particularly in mind is one where uh, he was uh, engaging in conversation with a young woman in a in a hospital. Uh, she, the young woman, was was deeply interested in a in a soldier. A uh, hospitalized soldier who was um, in, in, in the, there in the bed in the hospital, and she was pressing the question on him, "Where, where?" She said, "Where were you wounded?" Um, now the infantryman who'd been shot through the testicles uh, repeatedly deflected the inquiry by saying, uh, "Ma'am, I was uh, I was wounded at Antietam." Um, so the young woman then asked the president to assist her, but Lincoln talked privately with a soldier and then took the young woman's hands in his own, uh, explaining, my dear girl, the ball that hit him would have missed you. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I saw a long answer to your, to your uh, inquiry about the, the way in which Lincoln moves from being a, uh, a rather unconstrained uh, satirist and wit and mimic in the 1830s and 1840s into a more serious, someone who uses humor with more constraint, but um, perhaps with more delicacy, um, perhaps uh, using the, 
the stiletto more than the the, the hatchet, um, but uh, I think becoming all the more effective by virtue of the, the restraint that he uh, imposes on himself. One of the things that you do in this book is you go and look at the sources of his humor. And what you convey is that he had such a range of sources. There were some that he that you describe as that he favored in detail, some that he really enjoyed. But he really had this very broad uh, 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 set of sources that that he could deploy when, when, whenever he. Yes, um, it's um, he, he he himself said that. Uh, you know, he didn't make up any of his stories. He was, he said, he was a retail dealer, uh, 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 that, uh, and that his great strength was actually having a wonderful memory rather than having a great originating capacity or capacity for originating jokes. Um, I think that's probably true. Although I just given you an example with the uh, conversation with the young woman in the hospital uh, or uh, the deputation coming uh, looking to get their uh, their friend appointed to the sandwich islands he could be fast very fast and nimble on his feet but in in terms of the um, the kind of the the, the 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 range of his humor and the the the, the, the stories that he tells um, they are mostly gleaned they overwhelmingly gleaned from uh, a huge variety of different sources i mean so, so, some of the stories probably uh, are just uh, many of them are are word of mouth um, he grows up in a um, a rural society where story, storytelling was part of uh, everyday conversation. Uh, his, his uncle, Mordecai, was a great raconteur, and there was no one um, within the family who was a better storyteller than his own father, Thomas Lincoln. So there's a uh, the, the family, there are friends and acquaintances in, uh, in the farming community, in politics, in the courtroom, uh, who are not just uh, his audience for storytelling, but also the suppliers of comic material that he could uh, use for himself. Uh, he read widely um, uh, in uh, in humorous sources. Uh, he loved Byron's poetry, and but above all, perhaps the poetry of uh, Robert Burns. Certainly, Byron and Burns are uh, two influences on him. Sidney Smith, the Reverend Sidney Smith, the English essayist, um, the um, uh, fellow depressive. In fact, I think when 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 Lincoln. Uh, when Lincoln said about one of his cabinet members, and he's probably referring to Chase or Stanton, that it, and I quote, would take a surgical operation to get a joke into his head, um, Lincoln was using a formulation, a witty formulation of the Reverend Sidney Smith, um, who uh, is uh, one of, I think, one of the most admirable humorists of the, on the um, the uh, the British side of the Atlantic uh, uh, in these years. Um, there's um, Joseph Baldwin's Flush Times in Alabama and Mississippi. Uh, it is these uh, comic tales centered on larger-than-life characters. Um, and then during the, the war years, Lincoln took real delight in the comic writings of um, three uh, young literary comedians, uh, Charles Farrar Brown, Robert Henry Newell, and uh, in particular, David Ross Locke. I mentioned Locke earlier. Uh, uh, the uh, Brown uh, wrote, of, uh, wrote in, the, uh, in the, the guise of an itinerant showman, Artemis Ward. Uh, Locke in the, the guise of an ignorant pro-slavery preacher, Petroleum V. Naseby. Uh, Noel wrote uh, in the guise of Orpheus C. Kerr. Uh, if you say that name quickly, Orpheus C. Kerr. 
uh, it becomes uh, clear what he's doing. He's uh, he's uh, he's uh, writing about a recognisable type of office seeker, political office seeker, um, uh, who forms a target for, for ridicule. Um, Lincoln also owned. Um, we know he owned a copy of um, the. Uh, widely circulating and frequently reprinted reprinted 18th century English joke book by uh, Joe Miller, Joe Miller's Jests. Um, there are those who thought that Lincoln had learnt the entire contents of Miller, um, but had sort of embellished them and uh, and changed the stories to uh, uh, to his own use, to his own context. Uh, I'm sure that's true. The, the, the story about um, uh, Lincoln having uh, learning that uh, uh, Ulysses S. Grant was uh, was 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 drinking too much, um, and uh, there were the stories of Grant's drinking of whiskey were uh, were legion. Um, and Lincoln's response was to say simply, "Well, uh, he would like to know what brand of drinky of, of whiskey he was drinking because he'd like to send uh, the uh, crate of whiskey to his other generals." I mean, it's, it's a well-known that's a well-known story. But it comes actually; it's not original to Lincoln. It actually goes back to Joe Miller. <laughs> Uh, in those, uh, those the 18th century Joe Miller jest book, um, or uh, in the courtroom, there's a, a case where Lincoln adapted one of Miller's stories to illustrate a particular legal plea. The plea were, was of uh, son assault de main, in other words, his own first assault. Um, uh, the, um, the, the the defendant um, Lincoln um, told the jury had been protecting himself against the uh, plaintiffs. Abuse and violence, and he he he, he used um, he drew on Miller to liken uh, his client uh, to a man who, when walking along the the highway with, uh, with a pitchfork over his shoulder, was attacked by a savage dog that had come out of a, a, a barnyard, um, and and to protect himself. The uh, the man the, the the man who was walking along stuck the prongs of his fork into the beast and and killed the dog. Well, what made you kill my dog? Said the farmer. Uh, oh, what 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 made him try to bite me? But, but but why didn't you go at him with the other end of your pitchfork? Well, why didn't he come at me with his other end? Um, and uh, and at this point, Lincoln was holding up an imaginary dog in his long arms and kind of whirling it about and pushing its back end towards the the faces of the of the jurors. Uh, he made them understand very you know, immediately what the the, the 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 nature of this particular plea, um, uh, his own first assault was was all about. So, um, Lincoln Lincoln's um, uh, yeah Lincoln Lincoln draws on a whole range of of, of sources. Um, uh, in addition, I think I mention um, uh, well, I know I mention uh, Shakespeare and the Bible as other um, as other uh, sources of illustration. Um, uh, he knew Shakespeare. I won't say he knew all of Shakespeare, but he knew some of Shakespeare extremely well, well enough to be able to quote long speeches uh, from memory. Um, uh, Equally, uh, he could draw on passages of the Bible and on quotations from the Bible um, uh, out of context, uh, in a different context, but to his um, to his own benefit. In other words, using both Shakespeare and perhaps both Shakespeare and the Bible were so well known in the context that Lincoln moved in. I mean, this is a, a society where scripture is uh, is just uh, uh, the, 
the, the, the, the ubiquitous text. Um, but Lincoln's capacity to apply quotations or apply passages of the Bible in uh, unexpected ways, uh, again, was a, a means of um, uh, drawing, out, drawing out the humor of the situation. One of the uh, points you make in the book, and you've already alluded to this, was that Lincoln didn't just use humor to uh, to appeal to his audience in, 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 as a person or to uh, win them over on an emotional level, but you also describe how he uses humor to make a moral cr- critique that, that you refer to as laughter, and I, and I love this phrase, as a just laughter. And I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that a bit. Yes, I, I, I said earlier on that I think um, uh, the humor is that the, the core of Lincoln's being, and it's, um, it's not just because he finds in humor a, um, a vent for his moods. Uh, it's not just that it's a, a, a simple therapy, but I think it also, in, in some of its dimensions at least, it speaks to his moral sense. Um, why um, I mentioned that what had got me interested in um, Lincoln's humor more generally and in writing about it more generally was his love of um, David Ross Locke's creation, Petroleum v. Naseby, um, this particular satirical text um, that Lincoln uh, could quote from at great length. Um, text is there in the the text his own text his own copy of the the Naseby sermons uh is there in the uh, library of congress and uh, if you look at it you'll see that it's singed from the the by, probably by the candlelight from which by which lincoln was reading it uh at, uh, at night in the in the white house um uh, and he said to David Rosslock, that for the, the genius to have written this satire, he would gladly have given up the presidency. Uh, this was the remark, of course, of, uh, of um, a, an, a, uh, a president who had himself used, attempted to write satirically in the, uh, in the early 1840s and had got into serious trouble, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so Lincoln is a sort of satirist monkey, a satirist who uh, has tried it and hasn't quite hasn't quite got it. But David Rock, Ross Rock does. Petroleum v. Naseby is a pro-slavery preacher. Um, the the V in the name stands for Vesuvius. Um, uh, the sort of signal for readers of the text to to ready themselves for kind of eruptions, uh, caustic eruptions on the the pressing issues of the day. Um, Naseby, Petroleum V. Naseby, the pastor of the uh, of the Church of the New Dispensation, was a, a selfish, uh, conniving political office seeker, whiskey drinking, greedy, bigoted, unprincipled, racist. Uh, uh, hypocritical. I mean, it, it was, it, and, and the character was created by David Ross Locke uh, out of his profound anger over uh, the white supremacism, the the pro-slavery theology, uh, and the insincere pacifism of the Peace Democrats, the Copperhead Peace Democrats. He, he, David Ross, David Ross Locke is um, based in uh, in Findlay, Ohio. Uh, he's a New Englander by origin. 
um, upstate and then upstate New York, uh, uh, New England origins. Um, uh, in Findlay, he uses the platform of uh, his newspaper to make a, this satirical assault on um, the Copperheadism. Uh, uh, Lincoln's admiration for Locke has gone largely um, unexamined, um, and one has to say why, ask why. Um, partly, I think it's because uh, for a modern audience, the, the Copperhead theology of Nesby makes it um, very alien, uh, makes it less accessible to modern readers, although I think, frankly, it's much more accessible than at first sight it appears. Um, it's also because uh, Nesby is uh, just a horrendously offensive um, racist, and the language that uh, Locke uses to portray uh, to use in the satirical um, portrayal in the in the satirical portrayal uh, that language uh, understandably touches a very raw nerve today uh, there's no uh, softening of of um, the vulgar here in deference to sort of modern taste um, so I think there are reasons why uh, Naseby has gone um, un, unexamined and perhaps uh, therefore un, underappreciated. Um, uh, but L Lincoln's love of this text, I think, tells you something about um, the moral dimensions of, of Lincoln's own humor. Um, um, but he knew exactly what it was these Copperhead Democrats were, were drawing on, the kind of attitudes they were drawing on. Um, he had no time uh, for the um, uh, the ideology that sustained uh, African American enslavement, um, as you say, uh, th those attitudes challenge Lincoln's own profound sense of of justice. Um, one of my favourite texts of Lincoln, one of my favourite documents, uh, Lincoln for the um, in the in the 1850s, is just a fragment that we have um, uh, in which he um, he shows his scorn for uh, the Presbyterian pro-slavery theologian Frederick Frederick Ross, the minister Frederick A. Ross, who had had written a text on um, uh, defending slavery through the use of of scripture. Um, and uh, I, I, I have that actually in, in in front of me here as I as I talk. Um, uh, that the fragment says um, in, in his in, in, in his uh, assault on Ross, Lincoln says um, that Ross has concluded that it is better for some people to be slaves, and in such cases it is the will of God that they be such. Well, Lincoln says the fact that determining God's will was to be left to Dr. Ross, who, and I quote, sits in the shade with gloves on his hands and subsists on the bread that Sambo is earning in the burning sun, gave little confidence that he would be actuated by that perfect impartiality which has ever been considered most favorable to correct decisions. I think that's that, that's a a magnificently dry. I mean, there's there's humour in that, but it's an edge. It's humour with an edge. Uh, it's um, uh, it's a dry wit that Lincoln is using there in his um, dismissing of pro-slavery 
theology. Um, Leonard Sweat, uh, one of Lincoln's uh, closest um, uh, 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 colleagues, um, both before and indeed during the war, um, Sweat maintained that Lincoln read Naseby as much as he did the Bible. And uh, I think it's not widely known that on the last afternoon of uh, Lincoln's life, he delayed dinner uh, by reading Naseby aloud to two old friends from Illinois. Um, this was the afternoon before he later went off to Ford's Theatre to watch um, the, uh, the, the Victorian comedy, Our American Cousin, a, a frivolous comedy. Um, I think we do much better to remember Lincoln um, by his repudiation of uh, the, the ethical world of um, Petroleum v. Naseby than we do by his going to watch Our American Cousin, because it was Naseby that gave Lincoln so much more pleasure um, than did the, the frivolity of that play that he was watching when he was shot by John Wilkes Booth. Um, so, yes, the, the answer to your, your question, um, I, I think Lincoln's strong sense of justice leads him to an appreciation of satire that is written with an equally powerful sense of the injustice of those who sustain slavery by a pro-slavery theology uh, and the injustice of those peace democrats who purport to be um, principled pacifists, but who are really seeking to sustain um, slavery and the, uh, by extension, uh, the efforts of the Confederates to uh, undermine the Union. Um, so Lincoln's humor in an appreciation of humor in this particular respect, I think, has to be seen as very much part of his ethical makeup. You describe in the book just how much humor shaped Lincoln's image for his contemporaries. And I thought it was especially interesting how, as you were talking about earlier, he used it on the stump, he uh, used it uh, in, in uh, court, and it became part of what people identified about him. And yet, as you described as well, he is in the situation where he's in this war, and yet people were oftentimes turning to him, hoping that he would provide them relief, not just in terms of victory, but in terms of a diversion by, by telling them a joke or telling them a story. Yes. Um, and of course, th this cuts both ways. It, I mean, it, 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 it has its benefits and it also has its profound disadvantages. I mean, certainly, um, uh, there's there's no doubt at all that many people warmed to Lincoln, uh, many of his supporters and many Republicans and many on the side of the Union warmed to the president as a man um, who, um, bone-weary uh, and suffering in the White House, uh, found relief in jokes and jests, that this was a measure of his humanity, and that um, his um, his telling of stories was a was a measure not just of his suffering but also of his geniality uh of being uh, um a, a person that uh, they could find attractive that they could they could they could warm to they could identify with um and 
Undoubtedly, um, those who spoke for the administration and who spoke for the president um, were happy to cultivate that picture. So uh, Lincoln's personal uh, private secretary, uh, one of them, John Hay, um, had cultivated uh, a warm relationship with several journalists um, and, and supplied them with, and went on supplying them with examples of the, the president's wit. So that there was, this was one of the reasons why uh, there so often appeared in the, the press uh, another example of of Lincoln's stories, a, you know, a, a story. This reminds me of the story uh, that, and then the, the story follows. Um, so yes, the, 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 there's there's undoubtedly the. It's undoubtedly the case that many could warm to Lincoln um, because of his uh, being one of them, being a, a man who could share a, a, a common tale uh, and who had the common touch. Um, <laughs> yes. That's right. In fact, some of these stories are preposterous. I mean, some of these jokes are not very funny, and uh, mostly they are compilations of stories that have been around for some time. But they just because Lincoln has this reputation of being a man who loves a story and loves a joke, they simply uh, attach his name to the title of the book. So it's old, old Abe's, old Abe's Joker, old Abe's, uh, old Abe's joke, joke book. Um, and uh, uh, they uh, they they bear no real relationship to what he himself was was laughing at or what the stories that he himself was telling. But there is a commercial. You're quite right. Yes, there's a commercial advantage to be made out of associating Lincoln's name with uh, with uh, jest books and joke books during during the war. Um, but of course, as I say, there's another side to it, which is that. Um, uh, many of Lincoln's stories, um, he would himself have said most of them were uh, were pretty vulgar, pretty earthy, pretty off color. Um, um, uh, when he was asked why he didn't publish his stories, he said he apparently made a face and <laughs> said, "Oh, couldn't possibly do that." He said they would stink. These stories would stink like a thousand privies. Um, they, they, they were they were noxious and only really intended for private telling and by implication the, the private telling amongst males. Um, well, uh, I suspect that. Um, in fact, I have reason, good reason to believe that these uh, supposedly immodest stories were, I think, more offensive to um, the Victorian sensibilities than to our own. Um, um, I'll give you one one example, um, and it's probably in a, an, an adaptation of a of a story from of a, one, of, one of the many stories in joke in the jest books I've mentioned. But there's a the story of a collector of relics uh, who who loves old things, and he he hears about an old lady with a dress that she'd worn during the Revolutionary War. So he visits her and asks if she'd produce the dress. Uh, just to, to satisfy this is love that he has of things that are antique, um, and uh, so she produces her dress, and he seizes it and enthusiastically holds it up, saying, um, "Were you the dress that this lady, once young and blooming, wore in the time of Washington? No doubt, when she came home from the dressmaker, she kissed you as I do now, and um, as you did." Just that, heartily uh, kissing the dress, the uh, 
the old lady, the, the owner, remarked, Stranger, if you want to kiss something old, you'd better kiss my ass. It's 16 years older than that dress. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not the funniest of stories, but it's a nice, nice story. I don't think it would raise uh, many concerns if, uh, if it were told by uh, a modern politician. But um, this was the kind of story that Lincoln didn't want to, we didn't want to, to get to get out. But it's it is the case that um, uh, his enemies could deploy um, or could could use the, his reputation for the teller of the so-called supposed uh, low jokes or smutty stories uh, as a stick with which to beat him. They could they could say, "What does this do? This this shows that the the, the president lacks the, uh, the the gravitas required of a." Of a president that uh, it's uh, he's having to re- resort to humor to make up for his deficiencies in command, um, and it also uh, it also showed that Lincoln had a, a disregard, a cruel disregard for the suffering victims of of, of the war, um, and in. 1864, in particular, in the campaign of 1864, this charge of Lincoln, the the smutty joker, uh, uh, appears uh, in uh, regularly, routinely, uh, and in a way and to an extent that is uh, is unprecedented. I, one of the advantages of these search engines in, um, that you, we now have with uh, digitized newspapers is you can you can track the use of um, the the expression the smutty joker and Lincoln the the, the appearance of Lincoln jokes and reputation and, the, and the, the reputation that he has on both sides both as a genial joke teller and as a smutty joker you can track that and it's quite clear that in the election of 1864 uh, this now reaches new levels of of, of criticism on the part of the Democrats um, uh, and Lincoln uh, Lincoln the widow maker uh, you know, who is, uh, is, is, has spent more time in telling obscene jokes than he does in thinking about the, uh, the cruelties and the horrors of the battlefield. And this reaches its, uh, its, its particular uh, uh, incarnation in uh, one, one bogus accusation that was repeated over and over, that when uh, Lincoln had been touring the, the, the Antietam battlefield in October of 1862, at a time when the uh, Union corpses were being buried, that uh, Lincoln had shockingly turned to uh, uh, Hill Lamon, to Marshall Lamon, and had asked uh, Lamon to, to, to sing a, uh, a, a Negro song, um, the, the song in particular, Picayune Butler's Coming to Town. It was a popular African-American banjo song performed by blackface minstrels. Uh, the, the, the truth, truth of the story was, in fact, that um, the, the, well, the truth of the story was that uh, uh, it didn't happen <laughs> like like that. Uh, it, it, it what had happened was that some weeks after the uh, after the battle, when there were no bodies on the battlefield, Lincoln had indeed been travelling over the the ground in an ambulance with Walter Lamon, uh, Hill Lamon, and with uh, with George McClellan, uh, but he had not asked. Uh, uh, Lamont to, to sing this particular song. Uh, Lincoln thought this this charge appeared over and over again through the through the campaign of 1864, and Lincoln thought seriously about publicly repudiating it, um, and did write wrote wrote out a repudiation which he thought might appear over Lamont's own name, but uh, eventually decided um, that actually it was better not to rise 
to the uh, uh, to, to the bait um, that this would do would would be would be unlikely to change any views uh, and would simply bring him down to the level of those who were making the charge. But it's interesting that in 1864, um, both uh, before and after the fall of Atlanta, which of course was the the signal. Uh, uh, watershed moment of the of the campaign, but both before and after that, this charge of Lincoln, the smutty joker, is uh, persistently um, leveled um, at the uh, at the uh, uh, at the president in, as he sought re-election. It's just fascinating to consider how that reputation was so prominent, and how. Within a matter of a couple of generations, it has been, you know, it was totally forgotten as we sort of replaced it with uh, a much more uh, austere and, 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 and grave uh, uh, image of him. You're absolutely right, Mark. I, 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 uh, I, I find when, I, when I'm on this side of the Atlantic, I'm speaking now to you from uh, uh, my, my home in, in England. Uh, on this side of the Atlantic, when I, I tell people that I've I just published a book on Lincoln's sense of humor. Uh, they uh, almost routinely say, "Oh, well, that's a very sh- that must be a very short book." Uh, I, have no- <laughs> I have no sense that Lincoln had uh, any humor at all. I think that's partly because of the um, that great marble statue in Washington, uh, um, partly because the um, the 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 engraved words in the Lincoln Memorial are a measure of the seriousness of the purposes that he pursued and his capacity for magnificent prose, um, prose that is um, powerful, uh, is 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 ethical, uh, but is not in the least bit uh, humorous. and uh, I, well, I think that Americans uh, do have more of a sense that Lincoln uh, was a, a man who had the capacity for wit and whose sayings have um, come down. Some of them, of course, um, not his own, but apparently, apparently, some of the sayings have come down to us. Um, uh, even even in the United States, I think the full. Uh, uh, the full reality of Lincoln's humor is not fully appreciated, and uh, uh, and, and that's un- understandable. It's also, I think, the case that when you start looking at Lincoln's stories and jokes, um, they are they are of their time. Um, they are they have to be understood uh, in the context in which that they were uh, the stories were told and the um, the wit was man- made manifest. Um, uh, I think it's quite interesting how much, how well a lot of that humor has survived. Um, uh, it, it's, it's of its time, but um, in some respects, I wouldn't say it's timeless, but it has, it has traveled. Uh, it, is, it, is, uh, it has traveled into the 21st century and is still, uh, it, is, it can still be appreciated. Um, but what matters for us when we look at Lincoln, above all, is Lincoln the uh, reconstructor of the Union, um, Lincoln the uh, the emancipator, uh, Lincoln the man whose moral compass 
uh, is, uh, I think, m much more evident in what we read about him than his humorous compass. But I would argue that actually his humor um, and his capacity for humor, his capacity for seeing um, the absurdities of life, uh, capacity for appreciating human foibles, um, was very much part of that larger um, ethical uh, understanding of the world. Um, his, I, I'm second to none in admiring um, Lincoln's uh, application of a, of, um, uh, of a, a moral dimension, or his bringing of a moral dimension to um, the politics of the 1850s and of the, the Civil War itself. Um, but I think we we do him a disservice if we don't see that that moral perspective was itself shaped in part by um, his, uh, what I call his sense of humor. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, I'm returning to a project that I began uh, in 2004, um, the year when I won the Lincoln Prize. And uh, uh, the project was shelved. Um, Lincoln took over my life. Um, I'm not at all unhappy about that. But the project um, was a project that related to some lectures that I was giving, I'd been invited to give at um, in Cambridge University, at Cambridge, England, that is. And uh, the, uh, the lectures are on uh, the place of uh, religion in the construction of the American nation from uh, the revolution through to reconstruction. Um, it's a big, a big, a big subject, <laughs> and a, not exactly a novel subject. But I think I can. I'm hoping I can bring something fresh to the the topic. I call it um, building a righteous nation, and I, I look at the different and competing ways in which uh, Americans um, thought about righteousness. Um, righteousness, not simply in terms of their church going and in their religious lives, but how they brought that into the political arena. Um, so it grows naturally, I think, out of uh, the work that I've done on, on Lincoln in the, uh, over the last 20 years, but also goes back to um, work that I, uh, uh, much of my career has been, uh, in my academic scholarship as well, has been in the area of American religion. Um, and it will be uh, a way, really, of bringing together the themes that I pursued in understanding Lincoln and the themes that preceded that when I was working on, uh, particularly on evangelicals in the era leading up to the Civil War. Well, I, I'm, I'm uh, sorry you're turning away from Lincoln, but it's, it sounds like it's going to be a fascinating book. Well, I hope so. <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, and in, re in retirement, I, or semi-retirement, semi I now, I hope, have the space and time uh, to, to pursue that. I'm certainly uh, looking forward to getting my, my teeth into it. I think it's, uh, it's uh, as I say, I think it's a subject that um, is, uh, uh, is, speaks to my interests, but I think also is a big a subject that's in its own right is a big one and, uh, and an important one and one that uh, I hope will shed some further light on the, the way in which the, the nation um, made, its, made its way to the, uh, the crux of its history, the American Civil War. Richard, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Mark. I've enjoyed it very much indeed. Thank you.